This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, Lane here with Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. I got George Newberry on the line. I was looking to place my money somewhere in between deals. Somebody told me to contact George, who's out of Chicago, Illinois. He's got this fund who I um, got to know pretty well. And his interesting thing is that he went $17 million in a hole. So I had to get to know this guy. Bring him on. How are you doing, George? Good, good. How about you, Lane? Awesome. And um, just to queue up some of the people up there kind of taking a nap at this point, George has got a free book we're going to give away at the end to everybody who shoots me an email asking for it with their address. Now that everybody's awake with free stuff, <laughs> George, how uh, much simple passive cash flow are you making today and how are you doing it? I invest in our fund. It's it's I do as I encourage others to do, which is to invest in, in American homeowner preservation. We pay good return. And, and uh, so that's where my wife and I put most of our money in. You know, we're, we're the manager of the fund, but we're, we're also one of the larger investors in the assorted funds. In terms of apartment investing, I've done that and uh, a lot of real estate investing in the past. And uh, they're certainly made a lot of money doing it. But at this point, it's uh, it's easier simply to have it in the fund that you know I have regular control over. So this fund, what are you guys investing in? So what we do is we purchase pools of defaulted mortgages from banks and hedge funds, and these are typically loans that are not paying most frequently in low and moderate income neighborhoods, which is where you can get the biggest margins, the, the biggest discounts. Then our, our goal is to achieve consensual solutions with the families. So to give you an example, someone may owe 100 on a home that's now worth 50 We'll go and offer them basically whatever they want to do. If they want to do a mod, you know, we can drop the principal to 50. We can drop their payment, which may be 800. We can drop it down to 500. And I think most significantly is in most cases, they haven't paid in two, three, four years. So they owe twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 in back payments and late charges and, and legal fees. That was usually done on someone else's dime. So we're basically just bought the loan. We can pit, probably buy a loan like that for fifteen grand. But now we're going to the the homeowner and saying, "Hey, if you wanted all those years of back payments, give us typically two thousand dollars, and then we'll we'll give you a fresh slate. You can start out from here. So give us two thousand now." $500 a month for the remaining term of the loan, which is off 20-some years, and uh, and you can stay in your home. And that's oftentimes transformative for the family and something they want to stay. That's what they do. The payment we offer is typically cheaper than rent. It just makes a lot of sense. And, and we can accomplish that by sharing some of the discount with the family. If they've already left or they don't want to stay, we'll offer them cash for a deed in lieu. Typically $1,000, uh, they sign a deed in lieu. We can avoid the foreclosure process. It, it gets us to the point of being able to sell that property much faster. And we typically, by the time we get the properties, they're often not in great shape. So we're selling them typically to investors who then buy them and, and repair them and, and resell them or or repair them and rent them. And that's kind of the model. And once in a while, people can do a, a discounted settlement. Let's say the home is only worth 30000 We We can offer that we can settle it for twenty five grand, And that family may, between friends and family or um, cashing in an IRA or what, whatever, however they get the money, they can sometimes they come up with the cash and just own it outright. And they may, despite having owed 100, you know, 100 or more oftentimes. So that's what we do. And it, it's... Uh, the goal is consensual, speedy resolutions, and if we can, you know, turn fifteen thousand into thirty or into twenty years worth of cash flow, six thousand, you know, five hundred a month at six thousand a year for fifteen thousand, we get two thousand up front. Those are all things that uh, generate very significant returns. We do everything we can to avoid having to go to court and be spending attorney's fees while the homeowner's attorney is spending attorney's fees, although that does happen. Uh, I mean, that's we try to avoid it, but it, it's it's inevitable in some cases. And even then, you know, that's probably our worst option when it's uh, we have to foreclose, and oftentimes it takes a year and, you know, a few thousand legal fees and some property taxes that accrue. So it eats into the returns, but we still usually come out okay on there, but the returns are going to be a lot less than if we can achieve something fast in cooperation with the borrower. So you're purchasing non-performing or performing notes? Absolutely. Absolutely non-performing. The performing loans would be priced much higher, and they're more of a passive investment. This is an active. I mean, we personally invest in the fund, 
which is a passive investment, but as the manager of the fund, that's a very active undertaking. For like a performing note, what would you say the the typical return percentage-wise, just so we can compare it to other investments? And then also, what is it for non-performing? If you were to do this yourself and build the systems? On a performing, most people are shooting for high single digits or low teens, and that'll probably, pricing to those numbers, you'll probably be competitive in buying performing notes. And then you can get probably an even higher return if you go to you know low to market income neighborhoods where the loan the property values are low or commercial something kind of weird those you may get a little bit extra yield if you're non-performing I mean historically we've generated over 20 percent I have to always say where you know past performance is not indicative of future performance but nevertheless that gives you an idea of where we come out and it's often you know in the high 20s even sometimes some of the funds are still in the 30s now that usually drops with time and why I say that is let's say you buy a hundred loans today then the those ones that resolve fast, those returns are going to be you know, 50, 60 percent sometimes, uh, even more, uh, especially when you factor that you put out 15 today and you get back 40 in three months. That's going to be just a home run and that's going to be a huge, huge return on investment. But then there's going to be those ones that take two or three years to resolve and those will drag the return. So the return will pop you know, out of the box in the first few months on the loans that go down kind of the fast consensual route, but then those ones that linger and take longer to resolve will slowly, the return will drop, drop, drop. Uh, but it's still, even though it drops, you know, our oldest fund is, online fund is from late 2013, and that's still over 20%. You don't get that steady state until you get about 100 notes or so. I mean, you could say the same thing for five or 10. The reality is in this business, you will lose money on some loans. I mean, I think every fund in the country will lose, uh, of any significance, is going to lose money on some loans. As the pool gets smaller and smaller, you know, you buy five loans. The problem is if you bought the five loans that we bought 100 and we lose on 10, let's say, then you know you buy five. The theory is you may only lose on one, but what if you bought, you know, what if you lose on two? Now your returns are really going to be negatively impacted. So it really helps to do this on a larger scale and kind of spread your risk because the investments can be in non-performing loans, can be much more hard to predict what the outcome is going to be. We do our best to try to analyze. We do our due diligence up front in terms of checking taxes, checking values, uh, checking any code enforcement or anything or any other city violations, try to maybe review the service or comments and get an idea of what's the disposition of the homeowner. Are they going to fight? Are they going to be look? Are they trying to mod with Bank of America and Bank of America just refused to give them a mod? We show up. Hey, do you want to do a mod? And they say, yeah, great. You know, that's easy. But if they're contentious or, or, or whatnot and, you know, it's unknown whether they'll continue to be contentious, you know, that, that's one that could go wrong. A vacant home, you know, is becomes in most cases more risky. The chances it could be worth 50 today, gets vandalized this weekend. It could be worth 30 on Monday. That is uh, or less. And that's a, a big risk, especially if you paid 25 today or 20 today thinking it's worth 50 and, you know, someone strips all the copper and they leave the water running and, you know, show up Monday and you're literally underwater on your investment, you know, before you get out of the gate. And now you're having to pay for legal fees and take care of work. So those things, and kind of example has happened to us. And it happens probably to everybody who does it on at, at scale. And it, you know, we buy across the country. We get the best deal, good pricing because big banks and hedge funds can sell to us and know that we're not care about geography. So they have a loan in Puerto Rico or a loan in Alaska, they can, Hawaii, well, Hawaii is pretty desirable, but Kansas or, or wherever, you know, some wildly disparate places geographically, we'll buy them all. And that is something which helps us get pretty attractive pricing on these things. So I actually looked a few years back into this note stuff. For me, it, you know, it wasn't for me. I was you know, looking to leverage and kind of do it myself with the turnkey rentals and then going into apartments now. One of the main things for me was for a single buyer like myself, it's hard to get access to these good notes because I guess what happens is, you know, there's thousands and thousands of notes on these spreadsheets called tapes. And by the time you get to someone like me, 
there's all the crap there. Maybe enlighten us on how does the rungs of buyers get distributed and how do you get the best pricing on these notes? The best pricing is in the bigger pools when you're coming straight out of a bank or a hedge fund that is not you know not working th- these things in a, in a really entrepreneurial fashion. So we bought from Citibank. We just did a big trade last week. It was 209 loans. We bought it from Angelo Gordon, which is a big real estate fund. And they it was part of a huge pool of Bank of America loans that they bought you know, a year or so ago. And uh, I think they worked, they worked some, clearly didn't work the lower value ones very well. So most of these loans that could just kind of sat at, at their servicers for a year. And now they're saying, hey, these nothing's going on with these. Let's sell them. So we bought them really pretty cheap. And that's the best way because these, they haven't been tended to. There's, you can go out and, you know, the people in their homes, no one's been working with them. You show up and, hey, I can make you a deal. They're like, great. In many cases, you know, contrast that with you buy a loan that's non-performing from a smaller entrepreneurial fund who's kind of worked, figured out, hey, give him a mod, give him a deal, okay, nothing's working. Oh, I see problems or, or whatnot. I'm going to sell this loan. And they try to sell them in you know ones or, or very small pools. And not to say they're all like that. They're basically, people are selling loans because they see a problem or it's, it could be timing reasons, but mostly they see a problem or it's just not going to be resolved promptly. So they sell it you know, maybe to a retail investor who maybe because they're local to the loan or they're more hands-on, maybe they'll get a better result. But the easy ones are probably already picked out of there and uh, and resolved. For instance, the tape we just pulled, we just bought last week, 209 loans. If everything goes well, we could resolve, you know, a third or, or more in the first several months. And those are the easy ones. You know, and then the longer ones, we'll deal with them. But as you go up the food chain, it's definitely you get better deals. Before you've been into this notes, you had an earlier life. What's your Han Solo moment where you uh, took a pivot point and got to where you are today? So here's what happened. I did um, probably what many of your listeners either are doing or aspiring to do, which is to buy real estate. And you know, in 1992, I bought a four-unit building. A couple months later, I bought a 19-unit building, then a 60-unit building. I kept building up and up. This was in Southern California. Final building I bought in, in LA was 298 units in downtown Los Angeles. So I got in about to 500 plus units. And then I started buying out of state. You know, the first building I bought out of state was 233 units in Kansas City. And then I kept buying, you know, these two and 300 unit complexes around the country until I bought, you know, one of the biggest complexes in the whole country, which was 1,100 units in Columbus, Ohio. And that was, you know, I bought it for 13 and a half million bankruptcy court auction, great location. You know, it was an odd situation that it was primarily low income tenants, but it backed into one of the highest income neighborhoods in the city. Unbeknownst to me, you know, the city had kind of said, hey, it'd be great that this low-income property was not there. It was in in kind of the way of some planned development. They built a VA hospital across the street. But they, you know, I owned the property and I did a good job turning it around. But then it was it was hit by an ice storm and the ice storm just devastated the property. You know, in the aftermath of the storm, you know, I was kind of brought to my financial knees. Uh, and it was just a dramatic turnaround and turnaround in a bad way over about 18 months, what happened is the insurance, we were well insured. We have almost, we had almost $50 million in insurance, but unbeknownst to me, I'd never been involved in a, in a massive insurance claim before that the insurance companies, as the claims get big, they just find ways to not pay. And the goal apparently is to not pay as long as possible, make you file a lawsuit. And eventually, the longer it goes, the more desperate you may get and become willing to take a discounted, you know, something less than what you're really entitled to. And that's exactly what happened here. And this is uh, Woodland Metals, if people want to Google that, in Columbus. One of the big topics in your book, Burn Zones, that will be yeah, that- given away later. Exactly. That was my big burn zone. Actually, the whole book go, gives me gives you the you know insight into the run up, how I made all the money, and the success that I achieved. And then you know, as you put it, my hand solo moment, which happened when all this started collapsing. And and what you know, I made some mistakes. What I I was optimistic. I'm always optimistic. Uh, which is not always good, that the insurance company would settle you know, like they should have pretty promptly, and they didn't. But in the meantime, I said, well, I'll borrow my other properties. At that point, I had 4,000 units across the country. And so I started taking out loans on those and using that money to rebuild with the meadows with the expectation that at some point the insurance company would settle and then I'll pay back those loans. But what happened is as it got close to a year going by, I ran out of money. I couldn't borrow anymore. I'd used all my personal money. The property still wasn't done and there was still a long way to go. So the city became very aggressive trying to knock me out. And they- Because uh, you were in the path of progress right there. 
Yeah, exactly. And I was, I had no idea how, you know, that everything was stacked against me. I was kind of naive in that regard. You know, they eventually, they tried to vacate, they said that I had 122 buildings at this property. They um, issued emergency evacuation orders saying that they had discovered that the prior owner had taken some construction shortcuts. And as a result, all the buildings were subject to imminent collapse, which was, I mean, it was, it, it was a farce, but it was the city saying it. So I hired an engineer. He did a study and came back and said, you know, there's no problem. So we went to court to get a temporary restraining orders against the city to stop this evacuation. And uh, in court, the city admitted they had nothing, nothing. Uh, there was no real evidence to back up this imminent collapse theory. So they backed off and the court said, hey, you have six months to fix this property and you know you better work something out quick with the insurance company. And we're going to have a court monitor who's going to show up at the property every week to report back to the court and make sure you're on schedule. And so I, I made a deal with the insurance company, or my attorney did actually, and we settled for $32 million, which is just an astronomical amount of money. Now, the problem was it wasn't enough to fix it. And I'd already spent I forgot the number at the time, but it was 20-ish million dollars or more. I received the 32 million, pay back some of the contractors, and, and then I you know, was using the money in a hurry to get this six months. I said, hey, I'm going to get this done faster. So we had like 300 people a day working at the property, and the court was coming out every week, the court monitor, reporting back to the court that, hey, we're ahead of schedule, great, everything's going great. But I, what I didn't know was that the city went around – to HUD and said, hey, pull this guy's contracts. And so HUD came out and said, uh, you know, hey, there's some damages. And I said, well, yeah, it's from the storm, but you can see we're fixing it up. And they said, well, you have 30 days to fix all this damage. And this was an almost impossible request. And so I tried to, uh, I went to court and said, hey, you gave me six months. HUD's given me 30 days. I, I just can't get it done in 30 days. And so the, uh, the court ordered that HUD appear and kind of justify their actions. And, and HUD replied that they're a federal agency and they're not, they're not responsible, they're not bound by any uh, municipal court. So HUD pulled the contracts after the end of 30 days. They came back. They were there for about 10 minutes, and they said, oh, you're not done. And I said, no, I'm not, but I'm working. You can see all this work. And so HUD pulled the contracts. At that point, you know, that's the point where it's really the pivot point. All the tenants had pretty much were, were behind me uh, up until that point because then HUD, not only did they pull the contracts, they came out and said every tenant there, which there are 800 plus tenants, gets a free voucher that they can take anywhere. And so at that point, uh, everybody was no longer supporting me and said, well, I, you know, I got to look out for my family and whatnot. We're going to take this voucher and move out to the suburbs or some of them even moved out of state and took the voucher with them. And these are Section 8 vouchers. So that was the turning point. So pretty soon, the city succeeded in vacating the property. You know, I became uh, it, the legal battle went on a little ways, but I was just I was running on financial fumes at that point. I had exhausted all that insurance money. You know, now I still had debt on these other properties. So over the next eighteen months, you know, I pretty much lost everything. And you said earlier, I ended up seventeen million dollars in debt. I actually ended up $26 million in debt. And, and the, uh, you know, a lot of that was personal guarantees on some of these notes and whatnot. And you know, as it, it was um, a shattering experience. And you know, you, debt can be a great friend because I leveraged my way through you – know, I made some money, so I, I usually had good money to put in. But I, I took big leverage on some of these deals, um, you know, big loans. That was great in the run-up. But once it started collapsing, you know, that debt adds up pretty fast, you know, late charges, court fees and whatnot. And I was just getting default interest rate. You know, I just got buried under this mountain that I couldn't recover from and uh, or I couldn't pay. So I, you know, I made deals with some of the creditors. Some, some were aggressive and, and you know, th those are the ones – that, that if I didn't have the $8 million that you're trying to get from me, then you know, I'm not going to be able to pay it. I never filed bankruptcy. I worked out deals with you know, most of the significant creditors. But it, it was a cha very challenging time, and it went on for years. Um, in fact, I'm still making payments to one of them right now. And that's you – know, so it, it was shattering. And you know, it, it was very humbling because I'd always been you know, a hard worker and successful. And you know, I look back and say all those – late nights that I, you know, spent working on these projects, traveling around the country, you know, saying, hey, I'm building this kind of mini empire. <laughs> At the end of it, I had nothing to show for it. And uh, that was very humbling and, and embarrassing, really, because I was always, you know, kind of a success. And now, now I, was, I was clearly a failure. And uh, 
it was difficult to you know reckon in my mind what had happened and where I'd gone wrong. It was just one of those things where you can work really hard, make the right decisions, make the right moves, and sometimes you know other forces appear that make it so that isn't enough. So right now, somebody is probably listening out there and thinking that to themselves that they should probably not do any real estate or not get, use any debt. There's some checkpoints in here that you mentioned that some lessons learned that probably could have prevented the huge collapse. In hindsight, what were some of the things that you, you probably should have done? One of them clearly was, you know, the, the barring on the other properties was a mistake. I, the property should have stood on its own. And if the insurance company wasn't going to pay, then I, I wasn't, I shouldn't have done any work. And that would have created pressure, but it's pressure that was compounded later on. Uh, you know, people saying, hey, why aren't you doing the work? Well, the insurance company isn't paying. And here it looked like things were going okay because I was funding the repairs um, from my own funds. And But then I ran out of money. I, I should have never started that because looking back, there were tens of millions of dollars poured into that property over, you know, between the ice storm and 18 months later when it was closed. And all that money was eventually demolished. I mean, it was the whole, all the buildings, all that new, you know, everything new, plumbing, carpets, roofs, everything that, that, that was you know, brand new and in the end, you know, just demolished and, and, and taken to the dump. And that is, you know, that, that's just astounding. I mean, to look back on it for a while, it took a, it was really tough to look back and say, oh, you know, oh my gosh, what did happen? And I'll tell you, when I wrote the book was the first time I really took, you know, step by step what happened. People tell me when they read the book, they, some people cry and some people laugh, you know, in different sections. And I'll tell you, when I was writing the book, I cried and I laughed and I, and I can guarantee you I, I know the sections and it's not like, hey, feel sorry for me. It's really like this is what happened in my life. You know, life's not about money. It's about it's about a lot of things, but, you know, a lot of, about family and, and, you know, my relationships. Uh, you know, my family always stood by me, but it was – it created challenge. You know, the whole ordeal created challenges all around. You know, I made it through. I wrote the book. It was very therapeutic. You know, now as I grow the fund, the current American Homeowner Preservation, you know, we had some institutional interests, but and we do, we have some institutional investors in there now. But it took a little while early on as they started hearing about, you know, they could do Google searches about Woodland Meadows, Columbus, Ohio, George Newberry, and you say, oh my God, this guy looks like a. Um, some of the news stories are are not flattering at, at all. That's probably nice nicely put. The but re- realize that that's part of a public smear campaign against me. And uh, but you know I could say that I could write an explanation letter, but it didn't resonate as much until I, I wrote the book. And now now people read the book and say, oh, you know, people come up to me at conferences and whatnot and say, you know, or, or message me on Facebook, hey, I love the book. You know, I had I had whatever failure they had in their life, you know, real estate or otherwise. And, you know, it's, it, I found the book inspirational in terms of going, moving on from that, that your life doesn't end based on your biggest failure. It's, it's something I can reflect on and, and, and hopefully prove based on that experience. And I think the new company, the reason I'm good at resolving debt problems is because I was probably, I was, I was in massive debt problems. So to answer your question specifically, not borrowing on other properties would have been wise and something I probably wouldn't do again. I'd let each company or each building stand on its own. The other uh, thing I would probably do differently, I was tunnel vision. I was always like, you know, I have a vision of how it's going to work out and this is how it's going to work out. And here I had so many forces that were going against me. I should have recognized earlier on and tried to make some kind of deal with the city. Uh, They offered, you know, they, they did make an offer early on that I could move and, and I didn't realize why they were making the offer, but they caught – I was summoned downtown by the mayor, and they made an offer that they would try to facilitate relocating the HUD contract to another property if I could find another one in the city of Columbus, which I could have done, or, or, or several even. And then I'd abandon this property, which in retrospect would have been a good move. Uh, but the problem was that I had sold low-income housing tax credits on this property, and those wouldn't move. And I had sold those – with uh, you know, I was due to get a million dollars a year for eight years from the sale of those credits, and all I had to do was keep the property eighty percent occupied. So, if I moved, I'd have lost the eight million. But I was still that was eight million dollars that I would have earned. But I'd still have you know a HUD contract on some new properties. I could have used the insurance money and probably just settled with the insurance company for a lesser amount because I wasn't going to rebuild the property. But there would have still been some settlement which I could have then used. I wouldn't have hit a home run. But I probably still done okay and certainly not lost the millions and millions that I lost. And, you know, that was – but it's easy. In retrospect, it's kind of easy to say I should have done this, should have done that. So being open, having less tunnel vision and more open – you know, I was on a – for me, uncharted territory. 
have my eyes wider open and saying, hey, I'm going to do it, which is here's the crazy thing. All the things that drove my success, my optimism, my hard work, you know, those are the things that powered my success in building this mini empire. But those are the same things that powered my collapse because I was optimistic. I worked really hard, but and with tunnel vision, I was just going forward and I was going to I'm going to make this work and make this work. And I, I was convinced I was going to make this work, you know. Almost to the to the end when the when they started handing out the vouchers and I was saying oh my god maybe this isn't going to work it was tough but those are the things you know I, I uh, those are a couple of things learned from that you know hopefully they're certainly not mistakes I think I would repeat in the same situation I probably I do reflect on you know things that I decisions that I made there and you know things come up in life and you say well I did it that way before and you know hey maybe I'll do it a little differently this time. Take me back to that moment where, you know, they're, after they were patching out the vouchers and you <laughs> figure out what was happening and you went whatever in the hole there. How did you pick yourself up personally? I mean, I mean, just thinking like, you know, if some other investor just loses all their properties and, you know, gets a lawsuit and has to start from nothing or negative. What did you think? What did you do? <laughs> so I was living in Columbus and I still had a property in Dayton, Ohio. So Columbus, I was the last person to move out. And I said, well, I'll move into this one in Dayton, which I still own, but it was in foreclosure. I moved into you know, the, this low-income housing apartment complex, which I had always made a habit of living at the complexes, which was – Another ingredient to success, although it was, and you know, I, I never lived like a high luxury life. I always lived spartanly, um, which maximized the dollars that I had to do deals, which is what for me was really rewarding. And, and the, since uh, you are you're personally guaranteeing these loans, I mean, they could go after any other properties you own. Yeah, absolutely. LLCs. And they did, you know, they they have, uh, and that was so. I was getting hit with lawsuits, summons. You know, I remember being in court, and there, were, you know on Woodland Meadows and there were process servers, you know, they're kind of lining up to serve me on other, other lawsuits. So it was just an unbelievable time. Uh, so how did I pick myself up? You know, there was a, it took I mean, a while. What was the kind of the mental dialogue you're thinking at that time? You know, in, my, in the back of my mind, you know, I was thinking, Hey, you know, I had cause to, to sue the city. I just didn't have any money to pay legal fees. And, you know, attorneys were telling me you need 250000 to to sue the city. And I just didn't have it. And they would have fought it. So it was something, you know, in my mind where I say, well, that's how I'm going to recover some of this money. And, you know, that never happened because I could, just didn't have the money. And, and to f- go up against the city, they were just slamming me in the press. You know, the, the mayor had de- publicly declared war against me personally. They called Woodland Meadows public enemy number one. It was difficult and humbling because, you know, those things, I remember one of my cousins saw one one of the really negative articles and emailed it to my dad. <laughs> and, you know, my dad called me and said, hey, what's this? And, you know, I kind of told him, but I, you know, I, I tried to not tell him the worst stuff and, you know, some of the things they were saying. And, and uh, that was, uh, that was really tough. Uh, you know, your parents, you know, my dad always, you know, you, you always want to make your parents proud um, and do, I don't know that not so much to say, Hey, how great he's doing, but just to know that you're okay, that you're, you know, you're happy. I think that's what most uh, parents want for their kids here. I think they were concerned that I was unhappy, which, you know, losing all my money being, you know, uh, all these negative newspaper headlines. I think they were, there was, uh, they worried about me. I think that was, that was really tough. Um, And I tried, you know, I always tried to soften it, but you know, I think they, they knew, and 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 that that was probably the worst part. Uh, looking back, what if I lost all my properties and I called you up? I guess what would you tell me? I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, you know, over time, I kind of just wanted to gain some kind of balance. So I I I I, uh, I was always a, I've been a real estate broker's license for years. So I brokered some deals in 2007, made a little money, you know, to survive. And you know, some of the deals I brokered some apartment deals. Some of the commissions were were big. And I mean, I remember I sold one. I sold a property in Mississippi. I, you know, the commission was like two hundred grand. Okay, that was really nice. Now I still was, but I'll tell you, I I, I got that check, and I, I shouldn't have done what I did. But most of that money went to creditors to pay people. And I, you know, think you know, I, I owed twenty six million dollars, and I get a two hundred grand check, and I probably kept like ten for you know my expenses. There. I was just paying the other one hundred ninety. I paid to creditors, but one hundred ninety on two hundred on twenty six million dollars. I mean, it didn't it didn't do anything. And what I should have done was just kept the two hundred and kind of give me a little bit of a cushion. Um, and I brokered some other deals that were smaller and still still okay. But I was still the mindset that I was you know if I'm going to come out of this, I got to pay everybody back and clean the slate. And you know over twenty six million dollars. I mean, it, it just 
again, I was being optimistic, probably probably too optimistic. So I think in 2008, I, I was, okay, now I, I, you know, some of the news was kind of getting, getting a little bit old, started this company in May of 2008, in a real small office. Um, you know, I moved to Cincinnati, I was in Columbus, and I moved to Cincinnati, and, and then Dayton, and then I moved to Cincinnati and said, okay, I'm gonna start fresh. It was me and two other people, I hired two employees, and we started this. And you know, we started at the beginning, it was really slow. I was always optimistic, it would take off pretty fast. It went kind of slow, but it gained some traction. We started making a little bit of money, and then it's grown. You know, then by 2011, you know, we were a hedge fund, and then 2013 we started uh, raising money online as soon as crowdfunding became uh, permissible uh, for investments. And then you know, this last summer we were qualified by the SEC to to offer under Regulation A plus, which allows us to accept investments from accredited and non-accredited investors, you know, we, we now have a minimum investment of $100. So the goal is to make it very, very accessible to ever, just about anyone can invest. And that is, uh, and even start with 100 bucks, which is people can, you know, that's you know, dinner and, and a movie for a family on the weekend. So let me throw $100 and, and just see how this works. And, and I think most people start with larger amounts, but even they start with 100, they start seeing results and then they say, oh, this is pretty good and, you know, put more in it, or tell their friends and family. So it's grown and it's growing. And now I really use the story of my chaos, you know, my financial chaos to let people know why it ties in with what I do now very, very well. And I think looking back that the one thing, there's probably a few things, but one big thing that I came out of it is, you know, I can buy bad debt, approach families in a manner that I can directly relate to those families. I know where they're, what they're feeling. And if I can give them a deal right up front, you don't have to fight me to get a deal. I'll give you, I'll share some of the discount with you. I'll make it as attractive as possible. People actually get our letters and they think that they're too good to be true, that it's a scam. Hey, yeah, right. This company bought the loan and they're going to forgive $40,000 in delinquency for 2000. I mean, that's too good to be true. It goes in the trash. That's one of our, I mean, it's funny that we actually, our deals are sometimes people don't, you know, they don't realize that we we probably just paid 15 grand for your $100,000 loan. So we can, by doing, taking that two grand and $500 a month, we're making money. Uh, but it's not evident. People sometimes think that's a, it's a scam. You know, that they, eventually most of them come around because, you know, we may have to start serving some kind of legal notice beginning of starting foreclosure. They don't respond to work with debtors, but until you've actually gone through it and you know exactly what they're feeling and you, you, you know that the people are, they're, they're lying in bed at night, tossing and turning, can't get to sleep. I used to grind my teeth, which is, you know, I never ground my teeth before this. I haven't since, luckily. But during that period, I was grinding my teeth. It, it's And grinding my teeth, like not just like a little bit, like bad enough that a couple of years ago I had, I could afford this surgery that, you know, to kind of repair some of the damage. It, it's, uh, it's not a, it's not a good thing. Thing, but it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I went through it. I wanted to repair it as best I could. Uh, you know, I had this, this gum graft surgery where they kind of repair some of the damage from that. But it, it manifests itself in all kinds of ways. And I can relate because this country right now, I mean, I'm going a little off topic, but the country right now is very challenged. If you, A lot of people having trouble finding work or having trouble that work that pays the, the money that they expect, that they think that they're accustomed to living on, you know, for the majority of Americans, wages are either flat or have dropped and the cost of living has continued to go up. So that, that presents a huge challenge for many that these people who, who, you know, the majority of Americans who, you know, I think the statistic is 76% live paycheck to paycheck, 43% spend more than they make. I mean, those are horrifying statistics in this country where we're really, there is so much wealth in this country, but it's so concentrated in the top. And I think that's, you know, for your listeners, the opportunity to go on your own and, and kind of create your own destiny. I mean, that, that, that sounds cliche as I say it, but it really is something that uh, gives you a lot of control over the future because you say, hey, you know, the days of the, you know, going to work for the, for the company and staying there for 20 years or 30 years, those are diminishing. I think it's fascinating that you create this fund to help people in debt or foreclosure. I think in the Bible, it says, you know, if you're, if you're suffering from disease, help somebody that's suffering from this, you know, disease too, or if you basically got this problem, find someone with the same problem and help them out. So, you know, you're kind of doing the same thing here. Yeah, I appreciate that. that that's a, I, I think I've heard that, read that passage or heard it before. And that is absolutely right. I mean, you become good at something and, and share it. And it's odd, you know, not that many people have been through the same debt crisis as I have. It's for, certainly to the magnitude. And, you know, I guess I'm now in a fortunate position of being able to share that experience to bet. I mean, 
this is a very it's kind of a cool situation it's not that common where there's it's win-win you know usually there's an a there's a there's a loser and, and especially with wall street there's you know wall street wins consumer loses it, it seems like it's almost like a rigged game uh where the consumer always loses and here the bank or wall street is kind of nice is actually losing when they sell the loans now in fairness they're we're paying what they would get from another fund. You know, we're not, they're not giving them any big discount, any discount more than they give to someone, some other buyer. So we're buying these and then we're able to generate big returns for our investors and we're able to uh, generate transformative solutions for the families. So everyone wins. It's kind of a, I'm a little bit of a people pleaser and it's kind of cool that you're, that I'm not, I hear there's no loser. It's kind of fun. Have you pulled yourself out of that 28 million the whole year? <laughs> I still have I have one one big debt that I'm still paying on, and it, it's a uh, it was eight million dollars. I made a deal at, at a discount. You know, I make payments on it, but the payments are significant, and and I'll be done with it uh, next year at the end of next year, which would be nice. Uh, but yeah, that's so I'm almost out of it. People are probably wondering why didn't you just do bankruptcy? Huh. I fi and it's in the book. I actually met with an attorney did all the paperwork on the way to the office to sign it on the way to the, the attorney's office to sign it. And I couldn't do it. And uh, actually reading the book, I mean, it's, it was almost a low point, but I was driving there and I pulled over and, uh, I just, I couldn't do it. And I called him and said, I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm coming in. And I never did it. And I just, I, at the time I was still optimistic that I would turn it around. I mean, not, I would still recover more rapidly than I did. I was thinking, hey, if I file bankruptcy, that's like a pretty bad mark to have on your on your record for ten years. And you know, as it is, I've you know, my credit's pretty bad anyway, or was bad for several years. It's probably improving a little bit now. But that was a you know, bankruptcy would have been a much easier route. It just didn't seem right. And it, it's personally, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I tell people, friends and family in the same sit, you know, people that run into situation, hey, I'm in trouble with my mortgage. You know, I'm, I'm always like, hey, make a deal with your creditor. You have leverage. The fact that you're not paying, I mean, kind of creates this leverage, which you can use to make a deal that makes sense versus just filing bankruptcy. And then I, I don't know, there, there's, you know, bankruptcy seems like this panacea and it really, you know, it, it can be helpful. I mean, certainly Trump's filed a number of bankruptcies. There's also, it's not all easy. And, uh, I just made the decision not to do it. For someone who's gone high and then now low and just about getting back to even, what is your simple passive cash flow number? What kind of what's the monthly cash flow that you'd like to see to be happy? Huh. Well, that's a bit the best part of that question is to be happy. So the reality it, it's here's what's really difficult for me is I used to make just I mean remarkable amounts of, amounts of money and now I do okay. But I'm not making the same as I was 12, 13 years ago, which is a little frustrating and humbling. And I'm hoping to get back up to those numbers, but it's not, it changes their perspective. I mean, once you make, I was excited the first time I made 10 grand in a month. And then I was excited the first time I made 100 grand in a month. And then, you know, a few hundred grand in a month. So now when you have a month where you say, hey, I just made, you know, whatever the number is, you know, I remember 13 years ago when I made XXX. So those, eh, the reality is to be happy, I probably only need a much smaller number. I mean, it doesn't have to be that big to be comfortable. And, you know, when I made 10 grand in a month, which was probably, you know, I'm 51 now, I probably first made 10 grand in a month when I was maybe 26 or 27. And I probably first made 100 grand in a month when I was in my early 30s. And to, uh, so the numbers, uh, it's hard to put a number. I mean, right now, you know, I live, I still live pretty Spartan-like. I'm married now, so there's a, a little bit more of an expense, but we're not, my wife is also not, doesn't desire to live in the lap of luxury. We're, we're fine with fairly simple, uh, a simple lifestyle. So we don't need that much. And it's really hard to put a number. The, the number is going to be a lot bigger than what I need just because of perception of where I, what I know I've done and what, it's a measuring stick. It, it's a, uh, more than anything, and to say that I'm making this amount of money each month, or um, tough to answer that question. I mean, certainly, you know, 100 a month is at this point seems like I don't know. It's tough to say the numbers, but the number to get by is probably 10 grand a month, and to be pretty comfortable. The number to be because of my measuring stick is probably much more near well into the six figures, just because I, I've been there and I want to do better than I've done in the past. And uh, tough to say. I, I I don't want to sound greedy. It's not greedy. It's just it's the measuring stick thing. Does that make sense to you, Lane? 
I think it does. I think the important thing is that you're always increasing it. That's yeah, agreed. That, and that's the that's the problem is because it decreased, uh, and that that's I guess where it went wrong. You you like to think through your life you'll steadily make more and more just because your experience and, and your uh, you know your talents become more and more refined. But you know in in reality, especially as you get to bigger numbers, it's not your. Uh, or at least in my experience, it, it, it didn't work out that way. It did for a while, but didn't in the end. Is something that you recently thought about burning your cash on for a time savings or an improvement in quality of life? So I'm going to Costa Rica at the end of December for a week with my wife. Uh, we're staying at a nice hotel, but still the whole thing is going to be a few thousand bucks. You know, when we go on, hi- on, on, on trips... We go hiking, you know, which there's you can't even spend that much money hiking. You take some oranges and, and some figs or dates or something like that. You're not blowing your cash. But I guess we stayed in like a four star hotel, which was a couple hundred dollars a night. I would be tempted to stay in like a slightly more affordable hotel uh, and 200 grand a night. I mean, 200 grand. Two hundred dollars a night. Two hundred. Two hundred dollars a night for me is a lot. I'm just like, oh my god. But my wife, no, no, we should. We so that's one thing. I, I guess in our from our perspective, we're actually splurging a little bit, even though it really doesn't doesn't seem like it. Uh, but God, we, we don't. And we don't have a car. We walk to work. We live right near work. You know, we're, our apartments where we live is pretty decent. I mean, it's nice. But God, you know, my wife. I'll tell you, my wife. My birthday. I mean, Christmas. She's saying, what, what should I get you? And she usually comes up with good things. Last year, she came up with it was. Like like a home run present, but it wasn't that expensive. She got me a uh, dual monitors for my, um, you know, when I work at home, I have dual monitors at work. It's great. And she got them at, at home. And that was just, that was a very thoughtful gift. I hadn't even thought about doing it. And it just makes much more efficient to work. You know, the year before she got me a, a, a coat, you know, a, a nice coat, probably $700 from Brooks Brothers. So we're not exactly, so I don't, I don't even know. We, if I had more money, and it's not even having more money, it's really if I can manage my time better, which is probably hiring more employees and having more free time, so more free time to spend with my wife, family, doing things I like. I run a lot um, with friends, uh, more hikes on the weekends, get a, more getaways. That would probably be personally the more most rewarding. That would be something that I would strive, and I am trying to strive to do to to. Uh, to have more, you know, we have a decent sized team here, but to make sure that to get me out of doing some of the stuff that I don't have to do and free up my time, that would probably be the most valuable gift. Actually, that's, you know, somebody, I'm not sure who said it, but there is, you know, the, the most precious gift is, uh, and, and your most valuable possession is time, not money. And, you know, so how you, how much time you spend with your family, how much time you spend with friends or, or doing things you like, that's the most valuable possession. And that's, uh, so can I create more time and can I spend money to create more time or can I build efficiencies in our business or hire people with different skills? Those are things that I, that I guess I'm really focused on doing. And if I had more time, that would presumably, and I, I think it's not a presumption, I think it's really would would lead to a richer life. Are you the person calling up the, no. the mortgage people and negotiating no. their loans? No, I'm not. Luckily, I, I, you know, at the early on, I did that. Uh, but as, as now, I've built a kind of a, a formulaic strategy that others can execute. So I don't, I get involved when there's a problem, and even then, I shouldn't. But I do. What? And and we're actually just having this discussion today. So these loans, look at them. If you buy a hundred loans, you put them on a conveyor belt. 80, more or less 80, 85 will get to the other side and kind of go down the pathway. You know, there's established set of guidelines that the team knows what to do. Now, the problem is about 15, 10, 15, maybe even 20 loans will drop off the conveyor belt. And these are the ones, and once they drop off, they're just stuck. And those are the loans that have issues that I get involved with. So I get involved with the problems. And what I'm trying to do, and we were discussing that this morning, is how, and I, and I need to do this, is I need to take the strategies for those, what are the most common reasons for those loans falling off the proverbial conveyor belt, and then design kind of template formulaic strategies to get those back on the conveyor belt. Like an exception protocol or something. Yeah, exactly. So I can get established that protocol and train someone to do that, then 80% of those will get back on the conveyor belt and someone else will be running them instead of me getting involved in those. And then there'll be the final ones, which are just big problems, which then I would work on just the smallest ones, which would free up my time because I do spend a disproportionate time on these loans. You know, there's some that have big problems and I'm pretty good at solving them, but I can share that knowledge and actually give someone else that and free up my time to do other things that are probably more valuable to the company. All right. So time is the most important thing. 
Absolutely. So our last question here is, uh, so Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we're continually struggling to gain perfection in. The first is the arbor of fulfillment, and the second is the science of achievement. So if you die tomorrow, and I were to email this to your kids a couple of decades later, at that point they would actually listen, what would be <laughs> first the secret or hack to the science of achievement? How do you achieve the things that you have been doing? Hard work and focus. Here, here it is, probably hard work focus and optimism. Those are probably the three biggest ingredients. And with you, you kind of have to have them all. So you have to work hard. There's no real way to succeed without doing that unless you were born into wealth or, or marry wealth. But if you're self-made, you have to work hard. And that doesn't mean like slaving away, working 18 hours. That means working diligently and predictably. The optimism, I mean, to embark on any kind of entrepreneurial business, you always have to be optimistic because there's going to be times when things aren't going to be that comfortable, things aren't going as planned, and you need to still be optimistic that, hey, I can get through this. There's the proverbial burn zone. You're tested for a period where things are going wrong and not according to plan. And how do I get through there? And you're going to stay optimistic to do that and you'll be working hard. Another one would be patience. To be patient is probably huge because things never happen as fast as you want. And if you say, hey, I'm going to be a millionaire in a year and you're not, but you made some progress towards there, then give it a little more time. And those are things where people set sometimes unrealistic goals, or even if they're realistic and they don't kind of work out as planned, then you want to be able to have the patience to endure and get to the point where you do succeed or you get at least most of what you wanted. So those are a couple of, I mean, those are a handful of other ingredients to success. Now, fulfillment is different in some respects. Maybe it's a byproduct a little bit of that achievement, but being content, I mean, this is a struggle for me. And especially due to what's happened in my life, to be content and say that I'm happy with where I am and where I'm going and what I've done. I certainly would tell my kids to do whatever they really enjoy doing. If you have a job you don't like, don't stay there, no matter how well it pays. But if you find something that you're passionate about that can make you a living, do it. And even if it's the oddest, you don't have to go into real estate or securities or something where you say, hey, or being an attorney or a doctor, you can be a success at anything and actually probably make pretty good living at just about anything if you work hard and you become very good at it. They're not always predictable ways to success. So do what you like because really you get to the end of the day or the end of life and you know you look back and if you have a bank account with a billion dollars in it, at that point, who really cares? There's a really good book called The Five, something about dying, a, a nurse who worked in an elderly home and they were the five things she learned from the dying and, and you know one of them was you know not spending enough time with my family. I wish I'd taken more chances and followed kind of their dreams or their passions. I mean, these are things, it's predictable. It's not, it shouldn't surprise us. But despite knowing that, a lot of people end up saying, well, I'm comfortable enough where I'm at. I may not be that satisfied. It may not be that fulfilling, but maybe I'll start something new next year or next month or in a couple of years, or I'll do it as soon as I get $10,000 saved or 100000 saved or a million saved. There's a point at which you have to say, well, I don't have everything I want. Everything isn't quite aligned, but I have enough that I'm going to take this step. You know, whatever that step that is towards your big goals, but take it and then figure the rest out. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he's he's very successful, a digital marketer. And you know, when we were talking about some marketing for AHP, and he was saying, "Hey, don't." I, I was thinking like three steps ahead, and he he said, "Wait, wait, wait. Just focus on the first step. Let's nail that, and let's get that super successful." And he says, "The next step will be, you know, then you focus on the next step." But sometimes people, including me, uh, in this situation that I was doing, well, what happens after we succeed with this? Then what about this? And what do we? Don't think, think about what's in front of you. And right now, our, this is our challenge. Maximize that, succeed at that, and then go on to the next step. And that's something easy. Everybody's prone to doing it and saying, well, let me just wait for some other things to better align. And that alignment never happens. And then, then they never embark on, on whatever journey they want. Yeah, that regret is the big thing. I think oh, somebody, killer. Somebody told me the other day that, you know, there's more flowers at somebody's gravestone than like at a wedding or something like huh. that. Because re regret's the bigger emotion there. Yeah, can you imagine? I lost my dad in 2013, and I did spend a lot of time with him, so I don't, I don't regret. And he was 93, uh, so he lived a full life. A lot of the book is touches on some of my relationship with my parents. That time, once it's gone, it's gone. You know, there's no more opportunity. It always seems like, hey, I'll spend more time with him next year or this year. You know, my mom was, you know, after my dad passed away, she moved into an assisted living facility, which seemed it's a nice. It, it was nice. She just sold the house where they lived, so she had enough money, and it was a comfortable one. But 
she had all the comfort she could want. Not to say it was luxurious, but she had all the comfort she would want, but she got lonely. She was no longer as part of a household where there's a family around, family members and what. You know, people would go and visit. I would visit. My siblings would visit, but it wasn't the same. Earlier this year, she was kind of not doing that well, and I thought it was a lot of just being lonely. And so I invited her to live with us. She jumped at the chance and she, she moved in with us in June and, and she's 90. Actually, her birthday is uh, tomorrow and she will be 93. You know, that's time. I see her every, I don't even spend that much time with her, but, you know, just seeing her every evening and every morning and then on the weekends a little bit, maybe we'll watch a movie sometimes and eat together. I mean, those are irreplaceable moments. Easy to say, hey, it's tough, especially my wife is extremely accommodating on the situation, but it's good time together with my mom. And she, she spent a lot of time and sacrifice for all the kids. We had five kids for a long time and now, you know, kind of giving back a little bit. So I guess that's one example of something. I don't know if I could have done that 10 years ago or 12 years ago. I was just running too fast and now I'm, I'm probably running a little bit slower and, and I could recognize that that's something that's valuable. All right, George. So anything we miss, uh, you want to give out your contact information? Sure. So if you have any interest in learning more about American homeowner preservation, you can go to ahpfund.com name of the company is American Homeowner Preservation. Again, ahpfund.com. We welcome you to invest. We welcome you to invest with $100 and you can be non-accredited or accredited. Uh, you're, everybody's welcome. You know, cut, the book is Burn Zones. We're going to give, I made a deal with Lane. We're going to give all the listeners that are interested a free paperback copy. We'll mail it to you. Contact Lane and then he'll get us the addresses and we'll ship it out. You know, you can look on Amazon. It has some great reviews and I think it's something that hopefully you'll, you'll take away some knowledge and, and enjoy the book. Shoot me an email, lane at simplepassivecashflow.com, and let me know how things are going, how I can help you guys. Thanks, George, for uh, joining us. I got this book right here on the stand here. You, uh, some, some dude riding a bike. I don't know who that <laughs> is. That's me when I used to race bikes. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that the, this burn zone term is now a hashtag now. <laughs> me and my, my uh, business friends like to use the term. Oh, very cool. Very cool. I'm glad to hear it. We just did this little uh, private lending deal, you know, about 60 something grand a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we joked a little bit about, hey, this isn't going to be another burn zone, is it? <laughs> so you left some impression on us. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, George. Well, thanks again. We'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.